Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. In our series through the Gospel of Matthew entitled The Good News of God's Kingdom, we're exploring the ways that we, as disciples of Jesus, partner with God for the real, everyday advancing of His kingdom. Starting a new series today, uh, over the next 13 or 14 weeks, preaching through the first half of the book of Matthew. Uh, one of the, the most important verses for me um, in our series but actually in the entire book of Matthew is Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. So I just remembered, I know I asked you to turn to Matthew 1, but just flick over if you can to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, what I think is a, is a pivotal and vital verse. The preceding chapters tell us, uh, before Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, tell us that, that Jesus has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's, uh, he's come out of a time of testing. The devil has, you know, has tested him, and Jesus is, is secure and confident in his position as a son. And uh, he's gathered a team around him, and he's about to begin his ministry. Can I just say as a little aside, don't ignore those very three basic but important steps. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, the the security and confidence of what it means to be a son of the Lord Most High, son or daughter of the Lord Most High, and the importance of gathering a team around you. If it's good enough for Jesus, let me say it's good enough for us. And so Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, begins his ministry. And this verse, I think, is an incredible summary statement of what Jesus begins to do. Read with me. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming, which means to explain, proclaiming or explaining the good news of the kingdom. That's our sermon, that's our series title for the next 13 weeks, the good news of God's kingdom. This is Jesus not proclaiming good advice, good advice is things that we should do. He is proclaiming good news, the the good news of what God has already done for us, the good news that God's kingdom, God's reign and rule, God's manifest presence is available and accessible to every single person who puts their faith and their trust in Jesus. This is the the good news that, that Jesus is proclaiming, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So this is not just Jesus' teaching, but it's the, it's the lordship of Jesus being manifest through signs and wonders. And I want to say, friends, this is a, I sense this is a season for us together as a church to, to really contend for the supernatural power of God to, to flow in us and through us into our city and into the nations. We can only ever hope to see tr- true transformation come if we are relying on and operating in the power of God. And I love what the, what the Bible does here, and this is a little thing that I've been doing over the last six months, is, is underlining in every verse that I find, underlining the absolute statements of Scripture. You'll see there, proclaiming the good news and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And so as we contend for this, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you to join with me and let's, let's trust that we wouldn't settle for some diseases and some sicknesses and some being saved, but let's together trust for, for every sickness, every disease, and for everyone to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Verse 23 is a great summary statement of what Jesus came to do. He came, to, he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to rescue back or take back what the devil had stolen. He came to release and advance the kingdom of God. And you'll notice in that verse, verse 23, there are two things that Jesus primarily did. The first thing was he, he taught, he, he explained, he, he proclaimed the good news. And the second thing is he 
He trusted for people to experience the reality of God's freedom. We know Jesus, uh, in the book of Acts, the first chapter, ascends and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus' ministry, this ministry that Jesus started, that's summarized in verse 23, is a ministry that is still continuing today. But it's continuing through God's people, through you and through me, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and making sure that we are doing God's work God's way. We are fulfilling God's will God's way, advancing His kingdom by proclaiming and teaching truth and and releasing the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit so people can experience the reality of God's kingdom. Now, I know these are things that we are familiar with, but I'm just taking a few moments just to lay the foundation of what we're going to be looking at in our series through Matthew. We spent the back end of last year speaking on the Great Commission, and, and, and I want to just read the Great Commission to us again, because what I've just described, Jesus' ministry continuing through us, Jesus has commissioned us in order for us to go and do what he had, had already started. Listen to verse 28. You guys know this well. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. In other words, he's saying, I've, I've defeated the devil. I've, I've taken back what the devil has stolen. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I love the, the largeness and the expansiveness of the kingdom of God. The, he says, go and, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, baptizing people into the context of relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in that context of relationship, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I love the statement, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That describes the ways of God. The ways of God are about His presence going with us and giving us rest. Whether you are parenting your, your, your kids or in a marriage or in a relationship or going to school or going to work or facing a financial struggle or difficulty, God's ways are always His presence going with us and giving us rest. God's manifest presence, finding, finding uh, uh, the experience of God's manifest presence and in that giving us a sense of His, of his closeness and a sense of His rest. The time of striving, friends, is over. I, I, this week, I've been praying. My, my prayer this week has been, Lord, thank you that I've got nothing to prove. Thank you that I don't have to prove a thing to anyone. I don't have to prove a thing to you or to myself or even to God because Jesus has done it all. God's presence going with us and giving us rest. So in our series this over the next kind of 13 or 14 weeks, we're going to be learning things about what does it mean to, or, or how do we live in the kingdom of God? We're going to learn about hearing God's voice and living under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn about how to practically face the, the onslaught of the devil, those times when the devil throws lies and condemnation at us. How do we stand our ground? We're going to learn about the, the, the importance of godly character. It's my conviction that the single greatest way for us to grow in our effectiveness or grow in our anointing in God, if we want to use that term, the, the supernatural enabling of the Holy Spirit, the single greatest way for us to grow in our anointing is not the, not the, 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 the gifts that we have, but it's, the, it's, the, it's a heart that is after God. It's a heart that desires to be like Jesus. 
as we grow in, in humility, as we grow in, in becoming more like Jesus, I believe God entrusts more of his presence and anointing to us. We're going to learn about the mission that God has us on. And also, we're going to look, learn about what the kingdom of God looks like. But what we're going to do today, starting in Matthew chapter 1, is I'm going to be laying a foundation this morning, teaching on what I believe is the greatest truth or the greatest characteristic of the kingdom of God. Now, in saying that, I'm, I'm, once you hear what I'm speaking on, you're probably going to be thinking, yeah, but what about love? What about power? Or what about righteousness and peace and joy? And I, we're splitting hairs. So we're splitting hairs. Love is great and power is awesome and righteousness is good. But I, I would maybe argue just a fraction more that this truth that I'm going to be speaking on today is the greatest truth in the kingdom of God. It's a truth that, that I think this side of eternity, we will explore its height and we will mine its depths and we will never fully comprehend or fully understand. It's a truth that I think uh, underpins absolutely everything. We're saved by it. It it shapes our our identity. It enables us to live a spirit-filled life. I hope we never grow tired of teaching on this truth that I'm going to be teaching on today while while we're still at church, while, while church in the city still exists. I trust and pray that we would always be able to teach on this truth. I read Matthew 28, which is the, which is the commissioning of the disciples, the commissioning of you and me to, to go and make disciples. But it, it starts in Matthew chapter 1. This journey of Jesus commissioning his disciples starts in Matthew chapter 1. It starts with this truth. It's the truth of God's grace. The truth of God's grace. My, my favorite definition of grace is simply this. God's riches at Christ's expense. The grace of God, God's riches, the, the, the endless, boundless riches of God that are made available to you and me because of all that Jesus has done. This is, uh, I wrote this down, the abundance of God's blessing, the abundance of God's blessing and goodness, unearned, yet poured out upon us without limit because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the grace of God, unearned, the the boundless, limitless riches and goodness and glory of God that has been poured out with, 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 with just with, without God holding back a thing upon us because of what Jesus has done. My absolute favorite Old Testament story, and you might find this a little strange, but my, my favorite Old Testament story is out of Genesis 27, which is the story of, of Esau and Jacob. And how Jacob managed to steal Esau's birthright. And I think, and, I'm, and I will explain it now, but I think that is a beautiful picture of God's grace. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting we go and steal things uh, at all, but you'll, you'll see what I mean. So, so the, the situation, Esau and Jacob are twin brothers, Esau being born just before Jacob. And because he was the oldest son, Esau was in line to receive the father's blessing, Isaac's blessing. He was, he, was, he, he was the first in line to receive that. And also, Esau was Isaac's favorite son. But Jacob was that kind of conniving, kind of scheming guy. And, and he, he kind of cooked up a plan. And what he decided to do was he decided to steal one of Esau's favorite recipes and make his father a, a, a dish. 
just like his brother Esau would. And he, and he clothed himself in Esau's clothing, and he even got a goat skin and put goat skin on his arms and on his face because apparently Esau was quite hairy and the father was blind and he knew that he was going to touch, touch his skin. And so Jacob, I mean, that's quite a setup, just dressed in goat skin and clothes and carrying in this pot of stew. He goes into the presence of the father. And I love, just as a little aside, I love Isaac's response. He goes, ah, the smell of my son Esau. What he's saying is, my goodness, you smell like a goat. That must be my son Esau. That's essentially what he was saying. But, but ah, the smell of my son Esau. And he, he thinks that Jacob is Esau and so bestows upon him, speaks upon him the blessing that was due to, to Esau. Jacob got the blessing because he clothed himself in Esau's clothing. Jacob got the blessing because he, in a manner of speaking, hid himself in Esau. And that's what the Bible teaches happens to you and me with Jesus. Galatians 3 says, if you are placed in Christ, you have clothed yourself with Jesus. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, have hidden ourselves in our older brother, Jesus. And so when Jesus comes before the Father, we are hidden in Him. When God looks at us, when God smells us, He doesn't smell the smell of a goat. He smells the smell, the beautiful fragrance of Jesus. When God, when God looks at us, He doesn't see our, us in our filthy rags. He sees the glory and the magnificence of Jesus. And because we are hidden in Jesus, the blessing that was spoken over Jesus is the blessing that is spoken over us. This is my son. You are my son and my daughter in whom I love. And I am well pleased with you. That's what the father says to us. And that, my friends, is what I want to speak on today. The the God's incredible riches that come to us because we are hidden in the person of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let's, uh, if Matthew 1, uh, we're going to read the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus. And yes, we are going to read a few verses out of the genealogy, so just bear with me. We won't read the whole lot, but I do want to read the first six verses and then end off with verse 16 and 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. That's a tough one. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. King David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And then for everyone's sanity, let's drop down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So you're probably thinking, how on earth are we going to be doing a teaching on grace out of a family tree or the genealogy of Jesus? Well, let's jump in and see, see what we can learn from this. The first thing we need to remember 
is who Matthew is writing to. Matthew is writing predominantly to a Jewish audience. And what Matthew is doing, certainly in this opening chapter, is he's enforcing Jesus' claim that he is God's king, the ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a phrase that you're going to see a lot in the book of Matthew. And, and Jesus' claim is that he has been sent by God as the Messiah. You'll see in verse 1, it says there, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is claiming to be God's representative, God's ambassador, God's king. And so this family tree is Jesus presenting his credentials or, or presenting his resume for the world to see that he has the authority to represent God the Father. This is something that happens in our nation to this day, I don't know if you know this, but if a, if a, foreign, if a foreign ambassador comes to our nation, he, ha- he has to present his credentials to our president to say that he is a worthy representative of the nation from which he's being sent. He brings with him this, this formal letter from the head of the sending state to say, this ambassador represents me and has the authority to speak on my behalf. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. To a, to, a, to a lesser extent, it's something that you and I are probably all too, all too familiar with. We are presenting our credentials and presenting our resumes informally or formally all the time. You apply for a job, you're going to need to present your credentials. You go on a blind date, you're going to need to present your credentials in some way. Very soon, the question will come up, tell me a little about yourself. Tell me who you are. And we start that game of, of selectively choosing what parts of our lives we decide to mention or not. Now, I'm not abdicating fudging your resume in any means, but we all know the game, don't we? We all play the game. We, we emphasize those things about us that are good and, and we've been successful in, and we downplay those things that are a little bit sketchy about our past or those things that we failed in. If, if you kind of failed in your first year at college and then transferred to another college, that first college won't appear on your resume. It won't come up in the conversation. Okay, maybe I'm being a little too honest here, but I mean... <laughs> Those things happen. We know, we, we know what we need to do to, to probably or hopefully get that second job interview or get that second date. We, we're presenting our credentials. But what is so remarkable about Jesus' credentials, what is so remarkable about this passage is Jesus does nothing of the sort. Jesus doesn't leave off the bad bits. Jesus isn't embarrassed to include the, the parts of his family tree that are less than, than, than suitable. He is, he is showing the world that he truly is the representative of God, that he is coming to represent the kingdom of grace. We learn in Exodus 34 that, that the Father is, is, is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And Jesus is proving that he is a worthy representative of God the Father. The grace of God turns the values of the world upside down. I want to say that again. The grace of God that comes to us through the person of Jesus turns the values of the world upside down. And let's, let's have a look at specifically at this, 
um, family tree to see how, how, how that is true. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus' family tree mentions both women and Gentiles or non-Jews. Now, that might not seem very shocking in our day and age. Well, hopefully it's not very shocking in our day and age. But, but in first century uh, uh, Jewish culture, to include a woman or to include a Gentile in your family tree was incredibly controversial. This is a Jewish culture where it was not uncommon for, for Jewish men to pray this prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has made me a human and not a beast, a man and not a woman, an Israelite and not a Gentile, circumcised and not uncircumcised, free and not a slave. Jewish men in first century biblical times would, would thank God that they were not a Gentile and were not a woman. So that's why it's, it's, it's surprising that Jesus, tur- it's, it's, it's shocking in a way that Jesus turns this value on its head. Jesus is unashamed that Abraham, who is a, a, a moon-worshipping pagan, is part of his family tree. He's unashamed that, that, that Rahab, who is a, a Gentile prostitute, is part of his family tree. He's unashamed that Ruth, who was from the hated tribe of, the, of, of Moab, is part of his genealogy. He owns them. He accepts them. He celebrates the fact that they are part of his family. And it's the grace of God which enables Paul to later write in Galatians, we are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For we have all been baptized into Christ and clothed ourselves. There's that reference, clothed ourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither no Jew nor Greek Slave, nor free, male, nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the grace of God. That's the goodness and the grace of God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Before we move on from this point to the next thing I want to mention about the genealogy, I just want to make a quick statement about Abraham. I just felt the Lord kind of encourage me just to maybe step aside and make one quick comment about Abraham and his a presence in this particular family tree. The Bible talks about Abraham as the father of all who believe, the father of faith. The fa- you, you and I are children of Abraham. You know that, that kid's song we sing? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had father. It's the first time I've sung in church publicly. My goodness. We don't sing, we don't sing Father Moses. We don't sing Father Moses because we are not sons of Moses. We are not sons of the law, sons and daughters of the law. We are sons and daughters of Father Abraham who had a relationship with God by grace. Now, Abraham being referred to as, as, as the father of faith, what, what was his pedigree? What did Abraham do in order to be, in, in order to be anointed or in order to be spoken of in, in that particular way? Well, he did absolutely nothing. Abraham simply was called by God. And then Romans 4 tells us he believed God, he trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That was his accomplishment. Often when we, when we, when we come to this understanding of saved by grace and living by the grace of God, sometimes we, we, in our heads we think, well, yes, it's all by God's grace. God does it all. But I, if I suspect some of us, because I know some of you are like me, some of us think that, that what that means is that God does 99% of everything, 
And that faith is our little contribution to the equation. That God does it all, but our part in it is we bring a little bit of faith, a little bit of trust in God. And I want to say, friends, I don't see that in Scripture at all. Because then we are saved by mostly God and a little bit of our faith. Or we're saved, or we, we, or we continue to come into God's presence mostly by faith and grace, but a little bit of our own works. Friends, if you read the story of Abraham, I think you would quickly come to the conclusion that Abraham was not worthy of being called the father of faith. Because his faith consistently and continually wavered. There were times of incredible strength in faith and times of absolute failure in faith. But here's the point. God is not concerned about the quality or the quantity of our faith. God is concerned about the object of our faith. He's not concerned about how big or how great or how consistent our faith is. He's concerned about whether our faith is in the right person. And that is in the faithfulness of Jesus that's the faith that God wants us to have. Not, not big, consistent, perfect faith. He simply wants us to trust in the perfect faith of Jesus. My imperfect faith, trusting in the perfect faith of Jesus, enables me to come into all that God wants to give me and to give you. And so that's the point I want to make, friends. Don't be discouraged if you go through seasons of wavering faith. Don't be discouraged. God is, not, God is not putting you aside or casting you aside because you might go through a bit of a faith crisis. Put your trust in the perfect faith of Jesus. That's how we grow and receive all that God has for us. What has God spoken over you? What has God promised you? What are the things that you believe God has promised that he will do that you have not yet seen? I want to say, friends, don't be discouraged because of your wavering, uncertain, insecure faith. Stand on the promise of God. Believe in the faithfulness of Jesus. Believe that God is the God who will do what he said. I said to the guys in Columbus a few weeks ago, a little revelation that I had. You know, the remarkable thing about God is, is God, God calls us from before the beginning of time. God, God works in our hearts to bring us into relationship with him. God, God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. God equips us with his spirit and, gives us relation, and, and allows us to have relationship with him through his son, Jesus. God opens the doors of opportunity and releases us to do the things he's called us to do. God goes with us in the doing, and then God rewards us as if all of that was our idea. That's the grace of God. I hear sometimes over me the Father saying, well done. Good and faithful servants. I know one, I trust one day I will stand before the Father and I will hear those words. But you know the amazing thing? God has done it all. But he rewards me as if it was my idea. That's the grace and the goodness of God. The second thing I want you to notice about Jesus' family tree is that not only does it mention women and Gentiles, but it also mentions people with an incredibly shady and shameful past. People who have done awful things. You'll notice Tamar is mentioned. You can read the story of Tamar in Genesis 38. She decided to dress up as a prostitute to, to, uh, you know, to disguise herself as a prostitute so that she could sleep with her father-in-law in order to have a son. 
This is sounding like a People magazine article, and not that I would know what People magazine is all about. <laughs> I promise I don't read People I promise I don't read People magazine. What I would imagine a People magazine would, would, would include. The second person you'll notice in here is, is Rahab. I mentioned earlier in, uh, in Joshua 2, you can read about her. She was a Gentile prostitute. And Ruth, Ruth was from the tribe of Moab. Moab traces their origins back to the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. So, so Jesus is saying, Jesus is owning these people. And even in verse 6, look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David. This is the high point of Jesus' family tree. King David is in there. Things must be good. But look at, what, look at what it says. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You see, the fact that Bathsheba is not mentioned by name is not a slight on Bathsheba. It's a slam on David. That's the point that Matthew is trying to make. He's trying to emphasize the point that, that David was the one who, who lusted after Bathsheba, slept with her, raped her, and then arranged for his best friend, Uriah, to be murdered. And yet Jesus owns David, a king, a fallen king. Jesus owns Rahab, a prostitute. Jesus is not ashamed of them. Jesus is not ashamed of you. And Jesus is not ashamed of me. In, in Hebrews chapter 2, it actually says that, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And that's why Paul can write in Romans chapter 8, he says, There is now, there is now, now. Now means now. Now means today. Now means tomorrow. Now means three weeks from now when you mess up. Now means a year from now when you do something awful. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have hidden themselves in Jesus, for those who have clothed themselves in the older brother's clothes. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are in many incredible blessings of grace. One of them being the term or the word justification. It's a, it's a fancy word. It's a fancy theological word, which simply means just as if I didn't do it. Just as if I didn't do it. Justification simply means that, that because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God the Father looks at us and he completely forgives our sin. He declares us righteous. He declares us innocent in his sight. He says, you are justified. It is just as if you've never sinned. But can I say, friends, as great a truth as that is, and I'm almost nervous to say that, that is half the story. We aren't just in the negative and therefore forgiven and brought into a place of neutrality. Most of the evangelical church, unfortunately, overemphasizes this truth. We're just sinners saved by grace. And yes, friends, we are sinners saved by grace. But we're a whole bunch more. Jesus hasn't just taken us from negativity to, to neutrality. Jesus has, by, by his sacrifice on the cross, God has placed the perfection of Jesus, the complete righteousness of Jesus, the holiness, the glory, the magnificence of Jesus. God has placed that upon us. So now it's not just from negative to neutral. It's from negative to absolute positive. In Jesus, we are the glory of God. That is a remarkable statement to make, and I'm, it almost sounds heretical to say it, but it is the truth of Scripture. 
There's no need for us to, to come kind of skirting on the outskirts of God's presence because in case he notices that I'm here. No, Mark read it. We are sons and daughters clothed in the perfection of Jesus Christ. And so because of him, we can come boldly into God's presence. Think about this for a moment. How does Jesus come into God's presence? Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. Jesus who perfectly lived according to the law. Jesus who spent every day pressing into the presence of the Father and asking the Father what he wanted him to do. Every healing, every disease, every sermon preached, every body raised from the dead was because the Father's will was being perfectly outworked through Jesus. Think how confidently he comes into the presence of the Father. And then some of us, including myself, think we can come confidently into the presence of the Father because I've read my Bible once this week. Where should we take our chances? Reading my Bible once a week and thinking that I've earned the right to come into God's presence or completely hiding myself in the perfection of Jesus and saying it's on that basis and that basis alone that I can come into the presence of God. Friends, reading your Bible once a week, as important as it is, is filthy rags compared to this. This is where we stand. This is what gives us the confidence Mark spoke of. That's the grace of God. The riches of God poured out upon us because of what Jesus has done on the cross. That's why I've been praying this week, thank you God, that I have nothing more to prove. Nothing. Nothing. Free to be who God has called me to be and you to be who God has called you to be. There is now no condemnation for those who are clothed, who are hidden in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to live this way. We need to adjust to the new reality. This is the new reality. Romans chapter 5, don't turn there. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace is, and I've said this before a couple years ago, grace is not a little bit of fairy dust sprinkled on us to give us a happy personality for the day. You know, I've had my cup of coffee and a bit of grace and I feel great for the day. No, grace is a kingdom in which we stand because of the righteousness of Jesus. Grace enables me to come confidently into the presence of the Father. That's what the grace of, and we, friends, I want to say we need to adjust to this new reality. Those of you who've traveled overseas recently, you'll know that when you go into a new time zone, there's an adjustment that needs to take place. If you were in Europe for a while and you, and you came back to the States, you are six or seven or eight hours time difference. There's a, there's a time lag. And so when you land in Chicago, you can do one of two things. You can be completely stubborn and say, you know what? I was in Europe for six months. I'm going to live in America like I, like, like, like I was in Europe. And you're not going to adjust your clock you're going to be late for every meeting. You're probably, not, you're probably going to lose your job eventually because you keep, you keep coming to work six hours late. You're going to be absolutely exhausted, going to bed when it's light and waking up when it's dark. No, what do you do? I know that's silly, but what do you do? When you land at O'Hare, you adjust your clock. You are aligning yourself to the new reality. Europe is still there. The kingdom of darkness is still there. 
but you are aligned. No, sorry, that, does, that sounds awful. No, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying Europe is the kingdom of darkness. <laughs> Please, I have a British passport along with my American passport. I am European too. I, I apologize. Please, that's not what I was meaning. But what I'm trying to say is, is Europe is still there, but we live in America. The kingdom of darkness is still there. Well, there. The kingdom of darkness is still there. But we live in the kingdom of the Son, whom God loves. We adjust our clocks. We adjust our minds. We adjust our lives to the reality that we are the righteousness of Jesus because of Jesus' goodness upon us. Does that make sense? So no matter your past... And I know we've all got a shameful past. I know we have, because I have. And I'm sure we've all got stuff that we regret. No matter your past, I want to say God has a will for your life. And it's to do this, the next thing he's asking you to do. That's God's will for your life. You want to know God's will for your life? It's to say yes to the next thing he's asking you to do. And so as I end, I want to go back to that verse that I had you read at the very beginning from Matthew 12, because what I find so remarkable about this book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, is the person who probably had the greatest revelation of grace was the author himself, was Matthew. Matthew was a Levite, the the priestly tribe of Israel, and yet he's serving as a tax collector for the Roman government. Taxing the very people he's meant to be priesting or leading as a, as a priest. Now the Bible doesn't tell us why Matthew was in this position. Perhaps he was sick of religion. Perhaps Matthew was running from a, a shameful past. But the reality is, he is the only one of the gospel writers who quotes Isaiah 42. A bruised reed you will not break. And a smoldering wick you will not snuff out. Because Matthew was that bruised reed. And Matthew was that smoldering wick. And he knew that there was every justification for Jesus to overlook him. But Jesus walks right up to him and he says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew says yes. Irrespective of his past, Matthew said yes to the next thing God was asking him to do. And I want to say, friends, maybe you're here today, maybe feeling somewhat like a a bruised reed, just done with religion, done with the pressure of performance. I I lived there for so long, and, and unfortunately, at times, I go there. It's my weakness. It's one of the biggest areas of weakness that I have is I, I go to that place of trying to please people. And, and you know, it's exhausting. You feel like a bit of a bruised reed at times. Or that wick is starting to smolder. The flame, the passion that you once had for God begins to, burn, begins to burn away. My prayer today is that the grace of God would heal you if you are that bruised reed. And the grace of God would blow wind and, and, and fan back into flame that smoldering wick. So that we can, we can live free from trying to perform Free from trying to earn his favor. Free from trying to think that, that, that our righteousness is enough for, for God to accept us. 
Maybe you're here today and, you, and you're asking God, what, what, is, what is your will for my life? I want to say God's will for your life is to say yes. Say yes to what he's asking you to do. So often we, we, we live our lives right up into the edge until we need the grace of God. And then, and then we back off. And we say, yeah, that far but no further. And I want to say, friends, maybe today, maybe today's the day where you say yes to God. And you step over that threshold from self-reliance into reliance on the grace of God. Maybe today's that day where you say, Lord, I know this is scaring me. I know this is overwhelming. I know what you're asking me to do, but there's no way I can do it in my own strength. Maybe today's that day where you say, Lord, help me to take that step of, of faith from my own reliance and my own strength into the grace of God. And we, and, and we don't do that sheepishly. We don't need to. You know, even if we stumble and fall, God is gracious enough to pick us up and say, it's okay. Let's try again. That's how grace, gracious God is. So I'm going to ask just for you to be bold right now. If there's no one, that's fine, but I, I, I trust there, there will be some folk who are saying, that's me. I, I'm that smoldering wick. I'm that, I'm that bruised reed. Or I want to trust for God's grace to help me take that step into that realm where I'm not just living on my own strength, but I'm living in the grace of God. If that's you, can you just stand? I would love to pray with you. The reason I'm asking you to stand is I think sometimes there's faith that's released when we make a physical step. If that's you, if you're trusting, saying, God, that's me, smoldering wick, a bruised reed, or I want to live in that place of not relying on my own strength, but I want to live in that place of grace. Just open your hands if you can, if you feel comfortable doing that. It's not a formula, but it's just a, it's just a, a position of receiving. But most importantly, just open your heart. And, and I want to encourage you to look to the Father. Look to Jesus. Jesus, we, we come to, to pray this morning. We come into your presence, Father. Not in our name. We, we, we know just how, how worthless our name is. But we come in your name, Jesus. We pray in your name, Jesus. And, and we come this morning, Father, asking for just an outpouring of the grace to strengthen us. Those bruised reeds that are standing this morning, Lord, would your grace strengthen us? Would your grace uh, uh, um, cause us to, 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 to be confident in who you've created us to be? Lord, those of us who are smoldering wicks, Father, may, may your breath just breathe upon us today, Lord God. Lord, let, let passion for you burn in our hearts once again. Not, not forced, not trying to make it happen, not doing our six steps to a more ex- successful life with you. No, Lord, just resting in your empowering grace, resting in your liberating grace. Would you come upon us, Jesus? Breathe upon us, Lord. And Father, those who are standing, just trusting to take that step of faith into a a realm of uncertainty in the flesh, uncertainty in our minds, but absolute certainty and confidence in in the kingdom. I pray, Lord God, your courage just come upon them right now. Help them to step boldly and confidently into the kingdom of grace, to live at that place, Lord, where we are not relying on ourselves, but we're relying on you. We just ask this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.
Thank you. You can be seated. Just one last thing before I get Mark up here. Perhaps you're here today visiting, maybe for the first time, maybe you've been coming a few times, but you know that you are not in relationship with God through receiving or through putting your faith in, in, in Jesus Christ. I shared, I hope I shared today that God's heart is not for us to earn or work our way to the place of, of being able to be accepted by God. We don't clean ourselves up first and then hope that God will receive us. God receives us when we put our faith in Jesus. And so if that's you today, you're saying, Steve, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to, I want to know what it means to be in relationship with God. I, I want to become, we use the term Christian. I want to be a Christian. I, I, I want to be in relationship with God. If that's you, I would love to pray with you right where you are seated. Maybe you can just quickly slip up your hand just so that I know you're right there. I'd love to be able to pray with you this morning, leading you in a prayer where you receive Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior. Anyone who would, who would want me to pray with them this morning? Father, thank you so much for your goodness, and for your grace. Lord, would you liberate us? Would you set us free? Set us free, Lord. May today be a day where we throw off the shackles of religion, where we throw off the shackles of performance. Let us stop, Lord, help us to stop playing the game of am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Lord, may we just be liberated to serve you with passion, to serve you with zeal, to serve you because we love you. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. You can always check out more messages at churchinthecity.us or on iTunes.